Y'all, welcome back to Kentucky Fried Wargaming, where two guys who aren't qualified to talk about anything decide to talk about a game with hard math and chance. I'm Joe. And I'm John. And ooh, we get to finish out a series on this episode of the podcast. I'm uh, I'm excited, John. I like to put a little bookend on things. Does it count if we never covered Marathi? John, you shut your whore mouth. <laughs> it sure does. Um... We weren't doing specific content at that point, you jerk. Um, we can do a retrospective, Marathi. Like, I mean, Marathi was actually my favorite book in the entire series, but, you know, whatever. Um, today, though, we are going to put up our summary for the closing act of the Broken Realms series, so to speak. Broken Realms Kragnos, which sees a god come back into the fray. That has been out for a long, long, long time. And his return could hold some dark, dark tidings for the forces of order and anybody else who happens to get under his hooves. I'm really excited to break this one down for you guys. Uh, there's a couple of moments in here that I just adore. However, first, we got to talk about Javi Tybe and Gabe's Played, because y'all, it's a banger this week. John, this is normally where I ask you, hey, John, what have been your hobby progress? And you go, uh, I like red 18 books. And, and then I talk about what I painted. Um, your but not impression this of week. me is great. <laughs> <laughs> I sound incredibly stoned. <laughs> well, if that, that's your secret, John. You're always stoned. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but this week, I actually know what your hobby progress the games played were, because John and I got to play these dumb plastic army men together for the first time in a year and a half. And yeah. oh, buddy, was it fun. And I spent the week before um, rebasing the rest of my Skaven. Those of you who have listened to the show a couple times have heard that I've been working on these Skaven for a bit. Uh, I ended up just hammering them out in a few nights of just mindlessly rebasing um, 80 clan rats, 5 scry acolytes, a screaming bell, 4 rat ogres, 2 engineers, and then 2 weapons teams. God, and I did that's a lot converting of rats. To, I did some converting to make a, a couple of models. So many rats. And uh, now I would ask you what you were prepping for, but I saw them on the table. Yeah, yeah. We had an into like we we spent a Saturday playing way too much. Actually, it's not too much. It was the perfect amount. Just uh, the right amount of games. We stayed up way too late was the issue. Uh, that is true. Uh, we stumbled back into the house where all of our ladies were hanging out together around 3.30 in the morning. Um, it was closer to 4, let's be honest. <laughs> it was... Ooh, it was a blast, though. Uh, and we didn't just play AOS, actually, which we'll get to, uh, which is exciting. So, uh, well, John, uh, I guess let's set the scene. So, uh, John and I haven't gotten to play AOS together or 40K or any sort of tabletop games, largely due to the pandemic. Um, 
John is a frontline worker, and that made it really, really morally difficult for us to be like, yeah, it's worth risking, like, infecting people to play games. So we just, we didn't. We decided not to. And it was the right decision. Proud of it. However, it definitely sucked to go that long. So now that everybody in our friend group is sort of uh, vaccinated and things are opening back up and there's starting to be a little bit more uh, normalcy coming creeping back to the world, we thought we would plan a weekend of it. So John and his lady came up to stay at uh, me and my wife's place and our friend Corwin and his wife came down and all of us were just going to hang out and have fun the entire weekend. And we did that and for... Uh, John Corwin and I, our plan was to hop off to the hobby store Saturday so that we could play games. And it was so good. And I didn't even play in the first game. I was just happy to be watching. Uh, before we talk about Saturday, though, I do need to give a shout out to your wife. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for kicking my ass with your flesh eater quartz. It was great. Yeah. Uh, him and my wife threw down uh, Friday night with their armies. Um. You know, she is uh, starting to play the game again for the first time in a long, 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 long time. And she had only played like two games before the pandemic. Uh, so she wanted to play against someone who plays more like her. Because when I play, I'm a little more cagey. And she is a lot more murder. Hence the flesh eater courts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Friday night, uh, her and John went head to head. Rats versus flesh eater courts. And uh, in the end, she sort of hit him on the flank and just kept rolling the flank up. Um, and by the end of, like, turn four, he couldn't mathematically come back, so game was called. So that was a good warm-up for you. And then Saturday, we went up to my game store where we, you know, had big tables and terrain rather than, like, the broke hammer that we put together on my dining room table. It's not broke hammer if you're using Warcry terrain. It's just small hammer. That's true. That's true. It was at least plastic. We weren't using beer cans this time. Ah, uh, yes. The old days. <laughs> <laughs> not that old, John. Um, but Saturday we went up there, and uh, Corwin has only ever played one game of Age of Sigmar in his life. So we wanted to kind of give him a warm-up game and also get John into the swing of things. Uh, so John brought his Skaven and faced off against uh, Corwin's Iron Jaws. And boy, howdy, what a game. Yeah, it was very good. It was very uh, touch and go. And uh, I brought up mostly Scryer. So I brought like min MSU squads of like clan rats. Uh, I was going to do mass clan rats later. Brought some Storm Fiends, brought some Rattling Guns, brought like a Gracier, brought like... Uh, Warlock, Bombardier, it was like a thousand point game, lots of shooting, um, I'll tell you what, Gorgrunters, <laughs> Gorgrunters, <laughs> oh yeah, they, uh, them big pigs, oh, Ooga Booga, they slap, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, six Gorgrunters ran across the field and lodged themselves in John's rectum and, uh, just kept going, just kept going, <laughs> And, I mean, to his credit, John picked off a couple of the pigs. Uh, but by the time they got into the back line, or as I call it, like, got into the hen house, the three pigs that were left in the six-man squad was really all that was needed to do the job. And uh, we'll, we'll get into this as we're going to talk about um, 
this this weekend of gaming. I rolled consistently horrible the entire weekend. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it was nothing compared to the, one of the later games, but it was definitely yeah. not great. Uh, this is not me complaining, like, because it would always happen at the best times. The the amount of times, because if you're playing Scryer and you're playing Skaven, if you're not overloading your stuff, what are you doing? Yeah, why are you playing this army? Get out of here. And, and so it was frequently like the doom wheel would fall just short of where I needed it to be, and then it would explode. It's, I don't know, that kind of sucks, but it's kind of anticlimactic, so it's like, whatever. But there's other times where just stuff is just blowing itself up left and right, and I'm just like, <laughs> great, right? And it's not like rolling doubles on a six, it's like rolling doubles on a one. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, it was... Uh, it was fun. And every time, uh, well, John quickly learned that every time you shoot to the Iron Jaws, they get an extra move. So, like, during John's shooting phase, they started quite a ways back. And then every time he pulled the trigger on them, they just got closer and closer and closer and closer. Um, it was a little terrifying for John. I was worried for him. I still had a fun time. Like, I... My relationship with this game, after playing it for so many years, is uh, win or lose. I'm just here to like push models around, having a good time. And, yeah. and I that didn't was win, fun. like. I'm gonna give a little spoiler for this whole weekend of like plastic miniature debauchery. Uh, I didn't win a single game like all all weekend. <laughs> uh, lost them all, but I had fun in every one of them, and it was it was it was great. Yeah, and that one really uh, Corwin made some smart plays, which. Uh, you know, we all, uh, granted, we did help him to make the smart plays. Uh, as John and I talked about in like the beginner series, we are firm believers that if you are teaching someone the game, help them make the right decisions. Like, you know, when they go to like start their turn, talk to them about the board state, talk to them about where the objectives are, talk about how the victory points work. Maybe advise them on units they don't want to get too close to. Or maybe tell them units that they're going to want to hit really hard. Um, you know, we advocated for that in the show, and we implemented it this weekend with Corwin. And it went great. You know, kind of helping him decide, like, where to put those six Gore Gruntas. You know, should can, can you run them into a bunch of buffed-up Storm Fiends turn one? You can. Should you? I probably caution not um and he was a great sport about kind of understanding what we were saying and slowly getting the bigger picture which i think it also helps that he plays 40k quite a bit now so he understands the idea of like gameplay it's just you know teaching him this setting the weirdest part for him was getting used to the chain like the differences between the charge phases yeah um, that was new for him for sure and by by our our last game of aos for the weekend, he had learned all of his rules and, like, had a better idea of what he was doing with the army. Oh, yeah. And, like, two games. Oh, yeah. I'm very excited for the new Path to Glory stuff with Age of Sigmar. I think we'll all have a grand time playing <sighs> that together. Play it till our eyes bleed. Um, but, yeah, for that first game in the end, those Gore Gruntas just ran roughshod through the back lines and kind of, like, took all the objectives. And in the end, uh, the rats kind of broke and ran, as rats are wont to do. And uh, ended up giving Corwin the victory. Uh, after that, though, it was getting close to time to eat with the with the lady folk. So we didn't want to hop into another game of AOS because we knew we wouldn't get done before 
we had to go meet them to eat before coming back to the shop. Uh, so instead, we busted out a shorter game, Rain in Hell. Uh, for those of you out there who are kind of newer to the community, or maybe you aren't in the YouTube space, two wonderful, wonderful uh, content creators, uh, Vince Ventrilla of Hobby Cheating fame, famous for us at least, and uh, Uncle Adam of Adam Smasher, or Tabletop Minions, as some people know him, uh, they got together to make their own skirmish war game uh, that centers around demons fighting for sort of dominance and control of hell itself. And we didn't really know a ton about the game. When it dropped, it was a surprise. But we looked at this, like, super epic 80s cover art of a, like, black and white demon and uh, loved it. Had to give it a try. And, and like... We can we can drop the link in the description for this episode, but it was also really cheap. Like it was fifteen dollars for the print book and the PDF combined. It just easy, simple, and easy to get into. Doesn't require a lot of models, and we're like, we got it. We got to give this a shot. Yeah, it was super cheap, and honestly, like they give us so much content on YouTube for free that like. Giving them a little bit of money back, more than happy to, even if I ended up not liking the game. Which was not the case. Had a blast. Um, so a lot of my hobby time is actually building a little, what they call a cabal, or a little force of demons for this game. Because it is miniatures agnostic. Meaning, there are no defined minis that you have to use. You know, for people who play only Games Workshop games, that's probably a little weird. You're probably thinking, like, well, a, a bloodthirster's a bloodthirster, and a tree lord's a tree lord, but not the case here. The demons all have vague names, like Slaughter Fiend, or Tentacle tent Beast. Yeah, Tentacle Beast, Armored Demon, uh, things that can be represented in a host of ways. And they just kind of say, yeah. Make your own. So I went on a 3D printing spree. Um, I printed myself uh, a bunch of sort of foot troops, uh, which I wanted to theme after gargoyles for the demons. Like I wanted my whole army to be stone gargoyles. And I found a bunch of prints for those that were beautiful, printed them out. I uh, I found myself what looked sort of like a big six-armed draconic sort of gargoyle thing that I scaled to the appropriate size and printed out on my 3D printer. And uh, then I, for my leader, I could not help myself. As I was looking for a leader, uh, I wanted a sort of like more bestial gargoyle that looks kind of regal, and I could not find one until I came across a file that is Bronx from the cartoon Gargoyles, which if you never watched, I'm sorry, you should. It's so good. Uh, and it is sort of like a hound gargoyle. And uh, found it, downloaded it. And I want to give a quick shout out to uh, uh, the person who did the sculpts that I bought this off of. Uh, they were super helpful. When I downloaded it, it was in a scale that was huge, <laughs> to put it lightly. It was colossal i mean like 180 millimeter base colossal like statue size so uh i went and found him on instagram and was like hey man can you tell me the scale so i could scale it down 
And they were very nice. Like, yeah, it's like one, it's one to ten scale. And then I had to respond with essentially, hey, so I'm dumb. <laughs> what is one to ten scale in millimeters? And uh, they were very gracious and went, hey, uh, like, what size do you need it in? So I told them. And <clears throat> literally an hour later, maybe, they emailed me a custom-sized print of the scale I needed for that model. Uh, so I just want to give them a shout out because it was great customer service and their sculpts are beautiful. Um, you can find them on Patreon. They're called Prey Collection Studio, and I'll put it in the description as well. Uh, but again, that is P-R-E-Y Collection Studio. They make gorgeous sculpts, a whole lot of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle sculpts and pop culture sculpts, which, you know, TMNT fans unite. Um, <laughs> and I got all that sort of like, I got it printed out and I got it put together and... Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I literally did not really read the book before we played the game because I spent so much time printing. And I just threw the models on the table. And Corwin didn't even know the game really existed like more than a day before he came down. So he hadn't read anything either. So there we were. Two noobs. Never played this game before. Don't know the rules. No idea what we're doing. And while learning... The game still only took us 45 minutes. Yeah, it was... I so was uh, mostly sitting there reading the rule book and, like, helping answer questions as they were, like, doing stuff. Uh, and trying to, like, read ahead to make sure that, like, we figured it all out. And, uh, yeah, the rule book set up, like... I will say I've seen better set up rule books, but this was also better than a lot of other ones. Like this is better than some GW. <laughs> rule books uh, yeah. For... It definitely was clear and easy to read. Um, and it was very easy to set up our war bands. And I'd say in about 10 minutes, we both had our lists and even without knowing what we were doing, we were ready to start fighting. And <sighs> Holy cow. Did we murder the crap out of each other? Just. Reading this rule book gave me the same vibes as when I was a teenager reading, like, the Vampire the Masquerade rule book. And uh, in the best way. Like, I mean that in the best way possible. It had that kind of, like, feel to it. That, like, 90s uh, counterculture grit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, the game played super smooth. Like, I wasn't playing in the game, but I was there watching and, like, observing. Yeah, uh, it was super, super fast and super deadly. Everything died very quickly. Uh, I lost two demons and by, like, turn two. And Corwin lost four, I think, by, like, bottom of turn three or top of turn four. It was, it was bloody. Very bloody. And, you know, we got through it pretty quickly, which is a testament to the design of that game. And we want to give it a full review, maybe do a whole episode on it. Uh, however, you know, we want to play more than a game before we give you guys that assessment, but yeah, we, we want to do a full review after we've played probably like a small campaign, we'll probably yeah. get together and play like a weekend of just all just rain and hell. Uh, I'm actually working on making my own cabal right now. Uh, I'm using old Warm Hordes models, uh, and just mixing bits onto it. I'm going to go madness and they're going to be just obscure terrifying monsters but yeah that was our that was the second game we played we had an absolute blast and it ended at the perfect time like we had to we killed we ended the game and then three minutes later the ladies called us to go meet them for dinner so like perfect 
And then we ate, and we came back, and we entered into what have, may have been the most fun emergent narrative we have ever played. <laughs> um, when we came back, it was a little later, and uh, the sh we had the shop all to ourselves. And uh, you're like, you know, let's let's do kind of a bigger game. Uh, and John had 2,000 points of rats. We're like, all right, John, put all the rats on the table. All the rats. There's 120 clan rats plus a bunch of other stuff. And we decided that instead we were going to have me take my 1,000 points of Caradron and Corwin take his 1,000 points of Iron Jaws because that's what we had with us. And we will sort of team up to attack the rats, which in like a narrative scenario. Which, you know, I get it. It's not in the car roll, but I don't care. Um, so what we did to compensate was we created this narrative that the rats are holding a, a valuable fortress. And we gave them a whole lot of terrain on their half of the table. They got to set up pretty much however they wanted in the most uh, helpful positions. And all of the objectives were underneath them. There was nothing on our side of the table. And... The rules were essentially, if we didn't own the objectives by bottom of five, John wins. If he holds any of them, John wins. Because the Skaven are just looking to kind of eat through our forces enough. And we also gave John access to a spell that doesn't exist, which uh, I think we called the dreaded 13th spell. Um, yeah, yeah. Where when cast on a 10+, plus, he can summon a unit of rat ogres and set them up more than nine inches away from any of our units. It was a uh, D3 rat ogres, not a full unit. Yeah, full D3 unit rat ogres. <laughs> and um, they sort of burrowed out of the ground because it's their home field. And of course, they're like below the earth waiting to help. And um, we wrote, other than that, we went into it with the Iron Jaws, because uh, Corbin's playing Red of uh, Blood Tooths, uh, their goal is always to find portals and jump headfirst through those portals to see where they go. That's the narrative. Um, so the Iron Jaws suspected that somewhere inside the Skaven place is a portal that they could jump through. And they have to get it. And for the Caradron, we we're like, yeah, they're probably just looking to like get some stuff in the ruins. But man, that kind of changed a little. We'll explain why. Um, so we set up, and uh, we ended up going first. So Iron Jaws sort of started walking up the board, and all of my boats teleported across the table, as boats can do. And all guns locked on to the uh, Warp Lightning, warp lightning cannons. cannons. Yeah. yeah. There's two and, of them. And all the dwarves just dug, 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 opening fire from in the clouds. And uh, by the time when the dust settles, there are no more warp lightning cannons. <laughs> they are. They are gone. And, um, you know, I have a, a balloon boy sort of in the background with some other balloon dudes. And then it's the Skaven's turn. And at this point, <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm going to take a whooping. And, like, the screaming bell does a bunch of AoE damage. Like, okay, ow, that hurts. Hurts everything on the table, pretty much. And then a, what was it, a warp engineer? Yeah, yeah, a, an engineer. A warlock engineer. 
Yeah, he uh, he turns and he sees my Caratron balloon general, and is just like, "Yeah, I get ya." And he, I think he shoots him and hurts well, him. So, so here's what happens: he casts a spell, right? He casts warp lightning, uh-huh. does a couple of mortal wounds. All right, rad. He's feeling super confident about himself. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Uh, shoots his gun, does a couple more wounds. Feeling super confident about himself. He can do this. He can do this. Proceeds to charge. Makes a charge. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll do this. We'll do this. Hell yeah. He's got his like warp spear. I'm like, all right, there's only one way I can kill him in combat. I got to overcharge it. So I overcharge the spear. And if you didn't know about Skaven, if they overcharge that spear and they roll a one to hit, their single attack kills them. Model yep. slain. And so I, I rolled. <laughs> <laughs> I rolled. It just, it's just one. I'm looking at the one. The crow goes, does that mean he dies? I was like, yeah, it does. <laughs> and so we came up with this narrative where this like admiral is hanging out with the balloon. He's just shooting his guns. They blow up all the warp lightning things. All of a sudden he gets shot by warp lightning and they get shot again by this pistol. And he turns and looks at this engineer who's just looking like the baddest Skaven. Runs up with a spear like, I'm gonna get you. I'm gonna save the day. And everyone's gonna think of how cool I am. And he just like trips and falls and kills himself with his own spear. <laughs> As the... <laughs> the Arcanaut, not the Arcanaut, the uh, Admiral, just slowly floats up like, I didn't see that. I'm getting out of here, man. <laughs> Very Tucker and Dale versus evil. Uh, I think this, I think all these Skaven HQs have a suicide pact. Um, yeah, so that was his turn and it came to my turn. And uh, mechanically speaking, uh, I didn't take any shots back because there was nothing on the, that, on the side of the board with my boats that could shoot them. Except for the warp lightning guy, and he killed himself. So, that was that. Uh, then the boats teleported to the left side of the board. And um, when they teleported to the other side of the board, they picked new targets. Uh, storm fiends. And decided they have to die. So again, they kind of picked their target, get their buffs off, and blam, 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 blam. Uh, after a huge... Huge barrage from the skies. All the Storm Fiends are dead, and a weapons team is dead. Cool, 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 cool. And all while this is happening, we've just got a tons of Oryx charging the front lines of Skaven. Like, it's bananas. Yeah, uh, Corwood was going to be kind of like the fist on the on like the board, like charging up the front. And I was just going to teleport around the board, taking off key targets to make his assault easier. That was kind of the plan. And um, it went great. And then it was John's turn, too. And uh, which... It was your bombardier, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Oh, John. The bombardier turns to look at these guys. All these and KO. So far, the only thing to damage these KO have been a warlock engineer who kills himself. And a screaming bell, which has done a bunch of mortal wounds to everything on the table. This Warlock Bombardier has already taken a couple of wounds from using, like, some of the other mechanics. So I decided to overcharge this, like, big rocket, right? Overcharge this big rocket. It'll be great. Shoots a big rocket. Rolls a one. <laughs> <laughs> Blows himself up. <laughs> the KO. <laughs> Leave. And so we had this prevailing, like, just 
narrative where the orcs didn't even know that the KO were, KO were there. Like they, the orcs and the KO win the day. They, they push through the lines, they destroy the screen mail, all this fun stuff. So we have this dumb Tom Clancy novel of a narrative where KO were covertly, like covertly just shooting all of these targets and the orcs are just going, oh yeah, Skaven stuff just blows up sometimes. It's probably just that. <laughs> Few of them may suspect, like, Gork is with us! Yeah! Um, and the only Skaven that ever saw the Caradrot overlords killed themselves. So they didn't really know either, as an army, what was happening to them. And yeah, so we, just chaos. <laughs> we got out of there, no muss, no fuss, Metal Gear Solid style, out the door. Ah, it was so good. We killed so many friggin' rats. So many rats. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we had a blast. And at this point, it was 3.30. And uh, we were just going home. Uh, But uh, it was so fun. And I cannot wait to play again very soon. And I've got so much motivation to hobby after playing all that. Oh, yeah. I just wish I had the time to hobby right now. That's what I'm... I know. Similar boat. My... My wife and I are trying to buy our first house, which means we're looking at a bajillion houses, and it's just a very busy time. But I will find a way to hobby. I'll sneak it in somewhere. Well, um, do you think well, it's time? Oh, Jesus, John, it's been a 30-minute hobby progress. <sighs> yeah, it is past time. Sorry, listeners, we, uh, we've we been rambling. Sorry, listeners, we told you too much about our games. Uh, as recompense, please accept our topic for the day. Broken Realms... Kragnos. Okay. Well, I guess we'll tackle this one, how we're going to tackle, how we tackled all the others. But I do want to start with a note at the top of this. Kragnos is a really fun book to read. It is a kind of difficult book to summarize concisely in a live format. Uh, and here's what I, here's why. There's a lot of sub-threads that run through the book that are tiny little narratives that are interweaving back and forth, taking kind of the, the reader's view and casting it around the realms to different forces at different times. And that's very engaging. But man, is it hard to summarize quickly. Um, so we are It's also to- like part siege story, part origin story, part assassination not assassination, um, conspiracy. Yeah. Like conspiracy story. Yeah, there is a, a whole lot mixed together. So what we are going to do is take the ones that we feel are the most important, but there are definitely others throughout the book that are worth reading, and I fully, fully encourage you guys to go out and read them if you're interested in this at all. It's, it's a really fun read, and it's worth it if you really want to dig in deep. But... Well, John, I guess we should kind of start at the beginning, right? The the rising action that kicks all of this off. Yeah, so the very beginning is Ariel doing a ritual, right? Yeah. Uh, for those who aren't up to ritual. speed, Alariel is the goddess of life. Yeah, so she's she's trying to perform this giant life ritual in, in uh, Giran, and she is under attack by Beasts of Chaos. Um, they're trying to stop her from doing this ritual and like, it is not just a small amount of beasts of chaos. Like they have hordes upon hordes of minotaurs, beastmen, uh, like gores, ungores, 
Gorgons, Cygors, it's just an insane amount of Beastmen. Yeah, it's a huge hurt. And they're drawn because of the volume of the song. So, yes. for those of you who aren't up on the Sylvaneth, um, they communicate over vast distances. And they do so similar to whales, uh, except through the air. They will put out these long-form, beautiful, cascading, sonorous songs that will drift across the realm. And another Sylvaneth will hear it, and they'll respond in kind, or they'll pass the song on. And normally, it's just something you hear every now and then, and it may draw attention, but, you know, things keep moving. However, in this ritual, Alariel's at the center of this sort of... not I don't think I'd call it a, a pond, but sort of like a marsh, a wetland, if you will. And she is leading this gorgeous, beautiful song that is only gaining volume as other parts of her army begin to sort of sing with her. And this song that is casting the ritual is what draws this huge beast of chaos herd to attack her. And it is a super cool fight scene. And I really makes me love Lariel, and I wish her war scroll was as cool as the description. Because um, her and that beetle kill a ton of goats. A and ton of goats. Like, this is also one of the best scenes I've had for Beast of Chaos. And this is kind of the iconic fight for me. Between Beast of, for Beast of Chaos and for Sylvaneth. Like, these two fighting yeah. each other feels right. It feels good. And it's a very good scene. Mm-hmm. I wish this would have taken up more of the book. Like, I think this could have been drawn out a lot more. Yeah. This is sort of pushed into like three pages or two pages. It's not very much. And Um, it's also worth stating that another reason I I say that is because the ritual that she is casting has really, really large ramifications. It is essentially the Necroquake, if you know anything about uh, Last Edition. But for life. So, like, the, what happens in these, like, three pages will matter in the setting for the entirety of this next edition. Yeah. So, it's kind of unclear what she's doing at first, other than it's a large ritual. And as she is singing, the water around her feet is becoming more clear. It is becoming less murky, less full of bile, less corrupted. And she has brought almost all of her forces to defend this ritual, which is odd for Sylvaneth because they're usually small guerrilla fighters and they're tearing into goats and goats are smashing them to pieces and blood is mixing with life amber and they're sort of pouring into the soil down around her feet as the battle goes on. And as more of these goats are killed and more blood is fed into this sort of swamp wetland sort of deal, the song gets louder. And you it comes to describe that she is standing on the trunk of a huge ancient fallen tree, one that is blackened with rot and is almost sort of uh, calcifying from its age. And as she's singing, the roots begin to get a little more color back in them. And then the tree, this impossibly large tree, begins to slowly erect itself right up. And as the battle sort of kicks in higher and she leans more into the ritual, 
it become like the tree stands fully upright, pulling itself out of the soil by its roots. And it starts to like attack the beastmen. Like it starts dropping seeds, and everywhere a seed drops, these horrible vines pop out that start stabbing the beastmen and like pulling them into the muck. And there's this really cool art where that happens and like tendrils shoot out and shoot through Bulgore, like the giant minotaurs. Yeah. So pulling them down. It's very good. So cool. Um, and the tree uh, begins to bloom and leaves pop and acorns grow. And it is impossibly huge. Think like uh, for people out there who've watched James Cameron's Avatar, like those colossal impossible trees. That's the tree we're talking about here. And her ritual is to reinvigorate it. And as the song reaches a crescendo and she is successful and the beast men are kind of sent scattering to the woods, the ritual completes. And it reveals that this is the Oak of Ages from the old world, the center of all life that exists. And she has just resurrected it. And when the resurrection completes, a wave of energy rolls out from these roots, these impossibly deep roots, and cascades across the realm of life, and then through the barriers of the realms and into the others, across the realm of metal, the realm of fire, the realm of heavens, the realm of gur, and everywhere this, think of it sort of like an avalanche of power across the lands, everywhere it touches, life blooms. Trees that are almost dead come back. Bugs that are like starving in the soil become nourished. Things that are on their deathbed become emboldened, strengthened. And life becomes ascendant. The realms become bountiful. And deep, deep beneath a mountain, a god stirs. And it is this ritual that is going to set the scene for third edition and this... Broken Realms book. Because while it, her intention was to make the realms able to be colonized, which she is successful at, there are some ramifications <laughs> that are going to come to bear. And that takes us uh, kind of t to the city of Excelsis, which is like most of where the rest of this book takes place. So it's important to kind of talk about how it's set up. Uh, Excelsis is a city of order, which is populated by humans and elves and dwarves and, you know, dark elves and all the, the races of the mortal realms who enjoy order. And you could think of it sort of like a front, a frontier city. Um, I, I would, I would call it a, a frontier city in the sense that it has massive walls to stop giant monsters from getting in. Yeah. But everything about it is meant for that. It is a, it is a city that has never not known adversity. Not once. It is always under threat. It is always being attacked. Its defenses are incredible. And the entire design was made for it to be defensible. It's and the, the people only there are... settlement in Gur. Like, pretty much. Yeah. It is the, and the only people there place in Gur. are rough and tumble. <laughs> I mean, they are hardy folk. They're in a place called the Realm of Beasts. They kind of gotta be. Like... You don't go to a place called the Realm of Beasts and be like, oh, this is going to be great. I'm just going to have a great old time at Disney's Animal Kingdom. Like, no, no, you're 
you're going to a place where the land itself wants to eat you. Yeah, that is the thing that's worth mentioning is Gur is maybe my favorite uh, realm in that everything wants to consume everything else. And I mean that literally. Like rivers want to gnaw away at the banks of the lands that they flow through. Tectonic plates want to crush the other plates nearby them to subsume them to their will. Every tiny insect wants to eat something else, and that insect is going to be eaten by something bigger, and something bigger is going to eat that thing, and that thing, and that thing, and so on and so forth. Everything consumes everything. And it is a dangerous place to be. But somehow Excelsis stays. And it survives. And it's largely through sort of the dedication and determination of the people who live in the city. And in sort of previous books, the city had a a, a rough go of things when they were attacked by a, a cult of Zinch. Trying to convert the entirety of the city to the god of change. And uh, they were unsuccessful. Some parts of the city were sort of destroyed and have been cordoned off just for safety's sake to make sure that no one goes in there and gets infected. And even in the, uh, the parts of the city who, that aren't corrupted, sometimes endless spells just go rampaging down the streets for no reason. Or no discernible reason, I should say. Eating people, maiming people, killing people, magic going awry. And it's that problem that kind of leaves us to an interesting pinch point in the book uh, with some political intrigue going on. Uh, This is one of those sections that's worth diving into on your own. But um, they explain that across the city, a a sort of anti-elven xenophobic fear has been popping up. Yeah. Because it is widely known that elves are the race that is most adept with magic. And magic is seen as the thing that is threatening the city and is killing a bunch of people. So for those who are of a certain persuasion and are susceptible to fear of that sort, they just slowly over time convince others that elves have to be the problem. And if we just killed the elves, the problems would go away. And what if we killed all magic users after that? Because, you know, some humans use magic and we can't have that either. No magic. No magic in this fantasy city. Not allowed. None. And I too have played Dragon Age 2. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, a, a sort of underground group pops up called the Null Stone Brotherhood, who think that they are righteous crusaders uh, fighting against magic. And they are burning people in the town square. They are abducting elves and disappearing them, so to speak, from around the city. Uh, they are trying to murder the uh, sort of pirate elves that keep the the docks safe. And it gets real violent and real tortury really fast. This is probably one of the darker stories out of the Broken Realms. Like the entirety of the Nullstorm Brotherhood subplot is it feels more 40k than it does Age of Sigmar, but in a good way that still fits in the Age of Sigmar setting. It does, yeah. Um, and it kind of explains that in doing this, they're, they're maybe not fully 
understanding what they're doing. And that maybe there are others pulling these strings. And that introduces two of the important characters that are included as models. Uh, the witch hunters, known as the Van Dents. It's a, a father-daughter witch hunter team that are in the city investigating some of the weird happenings that are going on. Because they are kind of skeptical that there might not be other things pulling strings behind the scenes. And this is something like we'll we're probably gonna touch on later in this episode too. The entire Van Dents plotline with the Nolstone Brotherhood and like this entire subplot feels like it was originally supposed to be a novel, or it we believe that it should have been. Um, not saying that it doesn't fit into the book. It feels like they could have put this alongside the book as a novel or something else. It does kind of make this entire story a little bit overly complex. Yeah, it does. It is kind of like, all right, here's everything that's happening with Kragnos and the Siege and the God of Earthquakes. And here next to it is the Van Dent storyline. And both are quite good. It's just the Van Dent story has room for more potential. As they they track down the threads and they follow leads and they unravel the mystery and eventually come face to face with what they feared was behind it all along. Like it it could have been a very cool story on its own and I would have read the hell out of a novel. And I don't mind it being here. It just felt a little odd. I'll put it that way. So that's going on. We'll get back to that in a minute. Here's what we mean by it's kind of hard to summarize. As the Van Dents, though, are investigating these sort of religious fanatics killing and murdering elves and whatnot, um, a attack befalls the city, where Skaven erupt from a gnaw hole down near the docks. And when they sort of erupt out, they scatter through this packed city. Uh... Gutter runner rats are hopping from rooftop to rooftop. Throwing Skaven ninja slaves. stars. Yeah, throwing, throwing like... Poison. Yeah, poisoned, corrupted ninja stars at the populace. Uh, Skaven slaves, like, scatter to the shadows. Storm fiends crush and burn everything around them. And they're all led by a, uh, a warp bombardier that loves fire. And he sets... Most of the city ablaze. And there are a number of cool moments in this book that I love that are tiny. And one of them is that there's a scene where the gutter runners are jumping from rooftop to rooftop. And they're all throwing their ninja stars down at the populace. And they are coated in, like, chaos, rock, and poison. So there's uh, these stormcast archers sort of up on a palisade. Fire an arrow at Skaven. Fire an arrow at a Skaven. Fire an arrow at a Skaven. And then the moment a civilian gets hit with that chaos dart, fires an arrow at the civilian. Fires an arrow at Skaven. Like, they are cutting down their own civilians. And it was an interesting look into these Stormcast Eternals. Because um, they are fighting chaos so tooth and nail. They never risk chaos corruption. So, I... Whereas many people are like, ah, oh, no, these, like, you hear that stuff that, like, AOS is too rainbow bright and, like, everybody saves the day. I would just like to say, 
the Stormcast, who are supposed to be the good guys, are murking civilians mid-fight, which I'm not even necessarily saying is the wrong move. But, you know, it was dark and it was cool. And that was uh, so interesting, especially after seeing, like, Garda's Steel Soul and his group in uh, Bellacor. It was just very different flavor. Well, I think that's the important thing to remember is that there are no, all unlike in 40k, because in 40k there's no good guys, in AOS there's still some good guys, it's just some other ones, even within their own faction, are like, no, 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 we do whatever it takes, and uh, sometimes that's bad, sometimes it's doing bad stuff, like killing civilians, an objectively bad thing to do. <laughs> yeah, can't say it's good. You can only say, mm, maybe justified? They might be corrupted? It was just an interesting moment. And the Skaven attack is eventually sort of repelled. Uh, and it was almost of non-consequence until like the very, very end. Uh, Skaven scattered through the city. Most of the ones who are kind of like attacking are killed and put to the sword. The fires are mostly put out. It's kind of hard. The fire has a mind of its own. Hence, well, the, what, someone pulling the strings. The entire time they're talking about the Skaven, you get the idea, and they kind of show you this in the writing, that this is meant to be about... How do I put it? This is meant to be a softening blow yeah. from a narrative perspective. Like, the Skaven aren't meaning to do this, but from a, a plot device... It's meant that, like, we're going to see how much stuff we throw at Excelsius before the actual, like, siege. Yeah. Uh, the bombardier, who is, like, a pyromaniac, hears a voice in the fire. And uh, it gives him more fire gifts if he is, attacks Excelsius. So he just does it. But it's very clear that, no, whoever's pulling the strings didn't expect the Skaven to win. Rather, they really just needed them to be a distraction. And the, they do that marvelously. Um, and the Skaven are kind of put down, and the city enters sort of a quiet moment for now. And that takes us to chapter two, Kragnos Awakens. So, John, set the scene for us. So, in the second act, we go from being set in the modern times and like, of, like, AOS... To going way back to the age of myth, right? Um, and go back before Kragnos even, like, is a thing. And they talk about his original race. What was her name, Joe? Can you remember? Uh, the Drogrock? Yeah, the Drogrock. Of, like, the centaur, like, large centaur-horned people and, like, their conflict with the dragon ogres that exist in Gur that came from, like, Azir... Um, and like the star drakes that exist in Gur, and they're also fighting greenskins. Like, there's a whole lot they haven't touched on before in this second act. It is not just Kragnos became a god because he punched a bunch of stuff, and now he woke up from under a mountain. And he's really cranky, and he's gonna go kick over Excelsius and destroy the sandcastle Sigmar made. Like, they go deep into talking about the age of myth. Which is our first glimpse into the Age of Myth. Because really, like, none, we really never know what happened there. This is one of the few times they've let us peek behind the curtain. And I loved it. Um, it is such a crying shame that the Drogruk 
are not a playable faction because they sound so freaking cool. Like, yeah, you're I'm... telling me there's a whole race of bestial centaur creatures who live at total peace and harmony with the land? Give me that. And, like, being able to live in harmony with your ecosystem is definitely an accomplishment anywhere. I don't think anyone would argue that. But when your ecosystem is grr and your ecosystem is trying to eat you, it is only cooler for you having done so. And, like, you can assume that they are not, like, a peace, love, and chicken grease, like, group. Like, they're getting along with creatures that want to kill them. Big monsters. Like, they're probably fighting these big monsters. Like... There's something they could have done there, and I really wish they would have if they just made. Like we've got the we've got the cruel boys coming, and like the, they're super rad. I love them. I kind of wish that this would have been a new race and new factions slapped together, where it's like Kragnos is the god is like the the centerpiece model, and releasing this as a new faction that are awoken from under the mountain, and like they're part of the destruction factions, but their whole ethos is like fighting monsters like fighting worthy opponents and coming to like agreements with things by proving their strength and stuff like that would have been way cooler i would have loved it i think um so. yeah it was very cool uh and it kind of dives into his people and how he was a originally he was sort of like just a warrior uh he was always kind of impatient and he was always a little hot-blooded and he was always uh short-tempered but he started born as a normal member of his society. And over time, his bloodlust for battle and his love of it pushed him further and further into conflicts around Gur, conquering multiple, multiple species of monsters in his bloodlust with a few of his closest brethren as his sort of like battle troop. And over time, as he won more victories, he started to find things. He found the shield in a crag in the middle of Gur that he carries, known as Tuskbreaker, that is said to have been uh, sort of picked up by Gorka Morka and bit like someone testing a coin, and it broke his tooth. <laughs> so it was thrown to the earth where Kragnos picked it up and now wields it. He found the heart of a mountain, a, the geomantic core of a mountain, and turned it into a crude cudgel that could shatter walls. And through these sort of Herculean tasks, it's, it's got a bit of a Hercules vibe, if I'm being oh, honest. Oh, for sure. For yeah, sure. Like the, tr the 13 trials of Hercules. Like it's, there's, there's some callbacks there that gave me some reminders. But over time, the his legend... The 13 of Kragnos. Yes. <laughs> and uh, over time, his legend grows. And the orcs begin to hear of this beast. And wherever he runs, the earth shakes. And they begin to tell the tale to other greenskins that he is the god of earthquakes. And these greenskins begin to talk to one another. And the tale begins to spread. And they begin to fully believe that he is the god of earthquakes. And he begins to get stronger because of it. And then compounding it, 
The Greenskins, who fight alongside him sometimes, want to appease him. They want to give him gifts. They want to uh, try to ingratiate themselves to him. So they bring him bones. And they bring him specifically amber bones. They're the the most valuable resource in Gur. They're bones of beasts that are filled with the bestial nature of the realm. And he begins to consume all of this. And that makes him even more powerful. And over some unknown length of time, eventually, he is a god. Or close to it. Um, and he gets a little too big for his britches. A little? He gets very too big for his britches. Yeah. Uh, and Kragdos ends up kind of being his own downfall. As with many people who have too much success and no one to keep them in check, he overextends. Um, as John mentioned, uh, Kragdos's people and the dragons actually had an alliance because they fought together to fight the dragon ogres. And with that uh, war, they, they agreed to peace and they both went their separate ways. But Kragnos needed someone to fight. And the dragons were kind of the ones that were left at the top of the mountain. So he went up against them, and he ended up killing almost all of them. Crushing them with his mace and his shield, breaking their bodies and their spirits. And in the end, a few got away and fled. Flew off across the air after they had killed his sort of war cadre in the battle. And uh, as Kragnos is sort of lamenting the loss of his falling brethren, he hears the destruction of his people in the distance. Um, and he sort of comes to realize that the few remaining dragons are going to go kill the Drogrok. And that he essentially has damned them. Or at least hurt them severely. And in his rage, he crushes every dragon egg. He destroys every young dragon that he can find. He begins to try to wipe the dragons from the face of the earth. And that's where we kind of pick up with how he ended up in the mountain. Um, essentially, the last remaining dragons knew that he had to be stopped. At this point, he is so mad. And he's so unstoppably powerful that they can't kill him how they normally would most other things. He's just too freaking strong. So they sort of entreat with the Seraphon, the lizard men, these sort of be reptilian beings from beyond the stars looking to fight chaos over eons. And the Seraphon come to a deal with the dragons and, uh, through a horribly costly ritual, Kragnos is bound under the mountain, known as Beastgrave, and he is trapped there for millennia. And he slumbers, forced, as ages passed. Sleeping like a little baby. Little baby a very Kragnos sleeping on this mountain. Little angry baby. He's a very angry baby. <laughs> uh, which kind of brings us to that wave of life that we were talking about earlier, you know? Yeah. A thing that like ripples across the land and revitalizes things that are alive. 
Yeah. Kinda does It sure thing. did. <laughs> it was real good at that. It did a hell of a job. <laughs> well, something that I like is, and what we're alluding to is that the the ritual of life awakens Kragnos. And what I like about this is the parallel to the Necroquake again. The Necroquake kind of caused endless spells to exist. Um causing all sorts of like magical imbalances and like undead are spouting everywhere. Cool, cool, cool. But the major thing was endless spells. That's how it affected the tabletop game and the setting as mm-hmm. a whole drastically. This is Kragnos, meaning that they essentially like they awoken awoken a god. And it's kind of telling that that GW's writing team was like, oh, what's Necroquake do? Makes a bunch of endless spells that are kind of terrifying. That's cool. What about the life one? Uh, Wakens up the the quadrupedal big uh, god of destruction. But why? Oh, he just really likes killing lizards and stuff. Oh, that's rad. (laughs) That checks out. Yeah, I ran the math. Cool as hell. So, like, I'm wondering what the next like ritual to be done is like what is aos for like fourth edition's ritual gonna be the chaos quake uh i don't think they do that it's order quake it's order quake everything what? chills out for a while but it what, ends you're up just gonna have osha running across the realms making sure that all buildings are in compliance and workers are next... <laughs> wearing their that hard is... hats that's the next stormcast chamber after this chamber is the osha chamber of stormcast what the safety guys yeah, they all got little hard hats on. Little clipboards. That's their shields. Their shields are clipboards. And as you write clipboards. Yeah, as you write clipboards. Everybody has to hook in their safety harness before they drop from a ear. I, I love hate it. it. I hate it. <laughs> anyway, so Kragnos, like Kragnos, wakes up under the mountain, and he is pissed, royally pissed. He is in pitch blackness buried under tons of stone and i mean he's probably got a hell of a hangover like he's gotta be mad as hell (laughs) yeah and they explain in the book that this would kill most gods the pressure would kill most gods but kragnos starts to hammer his way out and one of the details i really love is for a long while now and like the broken realm short stories they've been releasing uh in the lead up to the actual books launch the Sort of destruction factions all across Gur have been hearing this thudding sound in the back of their head. Just thud, 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 thud. And it's like, it's rhythmic. And it is almost beckoning them to answer the call. And we were kind of like, what the hell is that? And we come to find out it is Kragnos in his mountain swinging his hammer against the inside of the stone. Every swing sending out that reverberating thud that all of the destruction factions can feel. And over enough time, he shatters the rock and he explodes out of the mountain. He is covered in dust and cuts and he's exhausted. But for the first time in eons, he breathes new air. And as he looks out over the land, he realizes it's not the home that he knew. And he kind of has that moment where he's looking around like, oh, where where are my people's homeland? Like, they should be over there. I, Where's but I my don't people? See our... Where's the orcs? Where's all my stuff? Yeah, I don't, like, I don't see our monument. Instead, 
he just starts walking. Um, and he is trying to kind of get his bearings as he storms across Gur, which is so cool. And this is actually where he meets up with the other destruction factions. Uh, they have been on a great wah to conquer some, well, to obtain some relics for a while. And it's Skagrot leading sort of the uh, Gloomspike Gets and Gordrak, the Fist of Gork, leading the Iron Jaws and everything else. And they are sort of on the march together trying to gather these artifacts for uh, reasons that Skagret doesn't quite know. He just has a bunch of people that he keeps high in a room and listens to their ramblings and kind of gets plans every now and then. Um, and they're trying to gain enough artifacts to accomplish some goal. But as they're on the march, they come across Kragnos. And being the destruction faction they are, Gordrok cannot help but try to fight this thing because it's so big like <laughs> it's so big i gotta fight it and he does he does uh they go toe to toe and kragnos like kills eight giants instantaneously in the fight and uh kind of gets a like punched by gordrak and cut by gordrak before laying gordrak's mouth out and a battle goes back and forth, back and forth, um, where Gordrek and his uh, Maw Crusher Big Tooth are getting the <laughs> snot beat out of him. And uh, Kragnos has taken a couple of licks. And uh, it gets to a moment where it seems like Kragnos is about to kill Gordrek. And uh, Skagrot just kind of distracts everyone. And like sort of brings down a spell that stops the combatants for just a moment. And Kragnos looks across this vast army of greenskins that look a little different than they did in his day, but very recognizable. And he looks to the giant bastion of order that is sitting in the realm that used to be his, Excelsis. And he essentially tells them, we're breaking the city. And everybody else... We're cracking else, one open, boys. <laughs> we're cracking open a boy with the cold ones. Um, they, being orcs, can't help but be like, hey, you heard him. Follow the big dude. And they fall in behind Kragnos. And they start heading towards Excelsis to crush it into dust. And, uh... Y'all, I feel like before we get into the final bit, we got to be a little honest with you. Yeah. John and I did not enjoy this final section nearly as much as we enjoyed the first two sections. Yeah, they. It, before we get into it, and we're going to tell you all about it, uh, the build-up made it, because ostensibly we spent the first one finding out about, like, what is Excelsius? Why is it important? And we find out about the ritual and we find out about all these subplots and we understand like what's going on that like, Oh no, the forces are in a desperate moment there. There's no way they can survive this. And the second act is all finding out about how hard Kragnos is like an entire origin story of Kragnos and how cool he is and all this other stuff. 
And then we have the siege. And I'll be honest, reading this book, it feels like it was three books put together into one. Yeah. And not exactly in the best way. Like some the, stuff the, is kind of hurried together. Yeah, the the threads between some of them are, are fairly solid. And then some of the threads are like, okay, you, you took a little bit of red string and tied it to a thumbtack and to another one thumbtack. Whereas the other ones have like direct roads. Um, and it's not so much far-fetched as it is, you were clearly trying, like, how do I, I'm going to say this and it, some people might get mad at me. I feel like a lot of the stuff got put into this book simply just to sell models and not just to tell a cool story. Um, there's two characters in specific. I I think that they were just thrown in and the entire subplot was made so it could sell the models in this book. Uh, yep. We'll get I there. Think, I think Kragnos earned his spot as like a release with this book, but there's just some other stuff that I'm like, there's... Because they sold... Was it five models? Uh, like five new models Kragnos, from this one book. The two Van Dents, the Slanesh sisters, and then the the flute guy. So six. So six. And like the flute guy doesn't even make an appearance. No, flute, uh, flute guy, guy makes an appearance after the ritual. After the ritual's done, like a couple of flute guys appear. But that's that's all. It yeah. was the, that was the most let down part of the book for me. Is that they gave me a new Sylvaneth model finally, and it is not not a compelling explanation. And not a compelling war scroll, but that's that's a thing for another day. The so like not to poop on this last act too hard, but we'll go ahead and tell you ahead of time. Uh feel free to argue with us if you disagree. Please. Yeah. Uh I would love to be I would love to hear other people's take <clears throat> on it. John and I kind of, we went back and forth on this a little bit because we try to be very positive on the show, but we also don't want to necessarily mislead y'all. want to be, try to be as honest as we can be. So we kind of went back and forth on, should we just kind of like put on a smile about it or should we be honest with everybody? And I think honesty wins out, but we'll try not to be turds. We'll just kind of bring up the bit that we think could have been best served elsewhere. So... This sets the stage for the siege. And it's not something that's kind of surprising, because when this giant horde of destruction begins marching towards the city, you see the army coming from miles away. Like days before it actually hits, they, they see that they're coming. And the city begins to prepare for what they assume is going to be a, a pretty brutal siege. They begin to stock all the guns up on the top of the, the wall. They begin to stock tar. They begin to put up uh, wards to strengthen the gate, enact magic protections. They start to do their best to prepare. Um, however, the city's kind of in a little chaos, which is making it hard. Uh, this is where some of the stuff from earlier comes back. So the fires that swept across the city were largely concentrated at the docks. Which means a lot of the docks are really hard to fortify because there's not very much there. All of the buildings and stuff that you could have used, pretty well rubble at this point. And also, the Nullstone Brotherhood, who's been running around trying to execute like elves in the streets, 
have pissed off all of the black art corsairs, the like elf pirates that protect the bay, that they just leave. All of the, yeah, the entire Navy's like, oh, you don't want us? We're gone. And they leave, leaving the docks further undefended. Also, when you're trying to make all these preparations for magic and stuff, it's kind of hard to do that when somebody is killing all of the mages. Which further hampens the effort to fortify the city. Um, and that's when some of the Nullstone Brotherhood plot is kind of revealed. That at one point, they might have been crusaders trying to do the right thing. They might have been the faithful fighting for Sigmar. They may have really wanted to help the gods. But over time, their zeal was slowly turned against them. An obsession, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, a strong passion, if you will. And one of the things that was really cool symbols is that across the city, one of the things the Nolstern Brotherhood started to do was to steal people's mirrors. It's, you know, under the guise that, you know, ah, we're stopping vanity. And they begin storing them in a cordoned off section of the city that no one goes to because it's corrupted. And they use it as like their secret hideout. And it's this big, so it once was a ballroom. Now it's kind of rubbled out. Um, and they put mirrors all over every wall, all of them broken and in various states of disarray, all of them looking inwards towards the center of the room. And as they keep bringing people to this room, they keep bringing elves to this room to torture them and then murder them. The blood keeps staining the floor and intermingling with the glass. And secretly, quietly, as the Nullstone Brotherhood are conducting one of their sort of night courts, if you'll call it, someone emerges. Two someones emerge out of the glass. And the twins of Slanesh appear. Uh, revealed to be the ones sort of orchestrating this thing the entire time. They're the ones who orchestrated the Skaven 2 attack. They're the ones who have been sort of pushing the Nullstone Brotherhood to new heights of depravity and violence and callous cruelty. And they used all of this elven blood as a sort of sacrifice to Slanesh to manifest in the real world. And they begin to pull demons into the world with them, sort of amassing a force waiting for the right moment to strike in the city. And the Van Dents, that's what they've been kind of picking up on and following. They they know something's wrong. They just can't quite figure out what it is in time to stop it. So that's sort of happening before the siege in earnest begins. It is sort of something that they set up and you go, oh, that's going to be bad when it happens. And then they just wait for their moment. So in the siege proper... Unlike sort of Bellicor that happens in a bunch of phases, this one's not so many phases. It, it yeah, the Bellicor ties... one felt more like a uh, like a Helm's Deep. Yeah, where everything slowly goes to shit. Yeah, this one felt more like Minas Tirith, uh, to keep the Lord of the Rings like allegory going on, where like the the story's jumping all over the place. 
There's lots of stuff going on in between the fight scenes, but it's very cinematic. Like, there's a lot of cinematic stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it is... Everything... When everything goes bad here, it goes bad pretty much all at once. <laughs> um, so everybody kind of gets ready for this fight. And Destruction begins coming, and there's this really cool scene where Destruction has a bunch of Mega Gargants carry... Well, they first have trolls run up to the front to absorb a bunch of bullets and cannons, and they're blowing off arms and legs and absolutely filling the trolls full of holes. And the trolls are just so dumb that they keep walking. Which is a surprisingly smart move for the orcs. Like, that is uncharacteristically smart for how they normally attack settlements. Normally, they just kind of all come at you quickly. Like, they actually planned this out a little bit more. Yeah, and as the the trolls kept coming forward, the humans kind of realized their error. Like, oh, God, they're just eating our firepower. But by then, they it's kind of too late. They don't notice the real threat, which is behind all the trolls, a whole bunch of Mega Gargants. I think they said two dozen Mega Gargants, like giants. That's a lot of meat. That's, that's a, a lot ton of, of boy. That's, that's a <laughs> ton of boy. That's a double dozen of boy. <laughs> Jesus, that's a lot of boy. Um, and they are all holding this giant skull of a god beast that they got earlier in the book. And it is meant to shatter walls. And these two dozen mega gargants are holding it and sprinting towards the walls. Many of them holding up giant hunks of wood for shields so that they cannot retarget and kill them fast enough. And the gargants hit the wall and the god beast skull rams the door. And there is a flash of light, a catastrophic explosion. Everyone is knocked from their feet and the wall holds. And the skull that the mega gargants were holding falls apart into pieces. The defenders cheer. The fist of Gork himself is sent hurtling onto the ramparts off of his mount. And he is sort of like surrounded by humans. And they, the humans get their good licks in here. Everybody's kind of in a disarray. The cannons retarget. They begin firing. Some humans start stabbing at Gordrak before he slaughters them. Like um, you do. Well, like you do. And the humans are kind of a little cocky at this moment. And then Kragnos begins to thunder forward. And he sort of comes into the city at an angle, not with the rest of the army, so that he could really gather force. And he comes in like a wrecking ball, an unstoppable earthquake. And one of the walls he hits... Sort Like, he sticks his hammer up, like the point is on a wall, and runs down the length of the entire uh, sort of fortification, and stone begins to crumble. And as he does so, he collapses one of the walls. And then he gets to the gate. The gate... That the skull, like the enchanted skull of a god beast, could not break. And like a horse, he lifts up 
onto his back legs only, his front hooves up in the air, his entire body flexed and with a roar that could shatter mountains, his hooves hit the gate. And they hit with more force than the skull did. And with a huge explosion and the runes exerted, uh, these two colossal doors shatter off their hinges. They go careening into the city, killing soldiers and toppling buildings in their wake. And that would just be two openings, which is bad. But then on the northern side of the wall, some of the Gargants get up and they begin to slam their clubs into the stone and it shouldn't be enough to topple them until they fall from below where it is revealed that Skaven have tunneled under that portion of the wall, taking a lot of its structural stability and it topples. Much um, like a lot of the narrative involving the Skaven and AOS, they accidentally caused another faction to be in hot water. (laughs) That is forever their shtick, and I love them for it. Um, And the wall crumbles, and now there are three holes in their defenses. And all of the defenses that were on those walls also are crushed in the rubble, and all those defenders up on those walls die. And that's not quite all, though. Because down at the beach, the freaking orc navy arrives. <laughs> so, on... Look, I'm just, I, I'm sorry. I'm picturing, like, 400 orcs, like, hefting a aircraft carrier on their back and swimming. It's <laughs> <laughs> there, and, like on, like, on top of the aircraft carrier are just orcs who put their hands out their arms out like t-posing and just keep flapping like, until they <laughs> Go, take off they're just making brrr sounds with their lips like planes <laughs> and then they just go crashing into excelsius like two axes in hand just start fighting dudes <laughs> uh, i mean it's not much better than that uh, essentially, it looks like a bunch of driftwood strapped together that should barely float and that is sort of being swam towards the docks with orcs and goblins kind of just on the world's shittiest pontoon boats ever made. Uh, and it's really fun because it talks about how like half of them get eaten by the giant underwater beasts that live in the realm of Gur as... They're sort of like paddling their way to shore. Um, and they uh, get start attacking from the docks. So, to put it lightly, things are things are bad. Things are things are real bad. They have a they have a goblin orc navy. Like, <laughs> do you have any idea at what level you're screwed when the orcs and goblins decide to work together to figure out how to make boats? Like, <laughs> you're so done. You're so dead. You're so dead. Someone made an orc do math. Dear God. Um, and at this point, the, the defense goes from sort of like a regimented uh, repelling of the, the destruction forces to a fight... For your life. Yeah, free for all. All bets are off. all defenders. Yeah, all bets are off. And, you know, people are trying to plug the gaps 
and trying to like fight the orcs back, but they're just so strong. And it's not just the orcs, the trolls come in and every time you stab them, the wound heals before you even pull the blade out. And one of the holes is sort of like plugged when a gargant, like a giant falls dead and the corpse kind of plugs the hole and the people are like, yay, we're saved from this point. And then those goblins that ride spiders come skittering over and just ignore all of that. And Can then you imagine how horrifying that is? Like a yeah. skyscraper sized giant falls into the hole and you're like, oh, that's horrifying. But also at least you don't have to deal with more orcs and goblins. All of a sudden they look up and there's just like 700 goblins riding spiders going <laughs> it's like that scene from harry potter it's just it's bad man it, it's all bad it's real bad and uh, the city is not looking good now there are some reinforcements that arrive uh, the celestial vindicators the sort of like beast hunting barbarian stormcasts. word is sent out that they need help prior to the battle and that storm chamber arrives. They strike down from the heavens to help fight back the monsters. And they do help the defenders by a lot more time. But it's just not enough. And I mean, maybe if they had enough luck on their side and just some strategy, they might have been able to push out the orcs, except, like, you know, for Kragnos. But then the twins of Slanesh reveal themselves. As the city is assailed all from the front and from the back, the twins in their band of demons come roving out of the sort of quarantined sector. With all of these shards of broken glass behind them spinning like a tornado. And as they walk through the streets, they're singing their own song of ecstasy and experience. And some of the many humans are dying upon seeing them from sort of like the heart attack and shock. Others are falling in their thrall and becoming followers of Slanesh. Their procession, sort of like a carnival through their city, through the city, while everyone else is distracted, heading towards the palace. And there's a little piece in here that I, I just love to bits that is holds no significance to the rest of the story. It's just a little piece I like. Um, it talks about how their trajectory takes them through like the town square uh, sort of deal. And it is set up as a medical tent for the wounded from the fights at the front and back. And how it is covered in soldiers and citizens. Everything from sort of like old men to young children all forced to fight. And it's covered in the wounded and the dying. And as the Sanesh... Uh, I guess I cultists and the demons pour. It's like in. a masquerade carnival, like parade of slanesh. Like it's, yeah, if it's you took carnival joyous. in the movie Hellraiser and you smashed them together, uh, yeah, that, like mix a little bit of like uh, what's a New Orleans thing? Uh, Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras. There we go. Uh, Mardi Gras, Carnival, all mix it all together with like a Thanksgiving parade <laughs> and fill it full of demons. And that's, that's what's going on in the city. Yeah. And like that procession heads to the medical tent and it talks about how, uh, the doctors don't fall to the thrall. Uh, and many of the wounded don't either. Those that can rise from their bed and take up whatever arms they could get. The doctors pick up their bone saws and scalpels 
and in an act of defiance go down fighting to try to defend their patients. And they are instantly overwhelmed, but I salute that town square of fighters. God, what a bunch of badasses. Some of them better come back as Stormcast. I'm going to be mad as hell. Well, if there's like, not a Stormcast with a bone saw, I'm going to be so mad. There's so many little stories like that in this book, and honestly in this entire series, that makes like reading these worth it. Like We're kind of giving you over the overhead, but there's lots of little stories like that that are just fantastic. I'm sure there's ones you'll love. Yep. And this is a great example of that. Yep. And they are, like I said, they're heading straight towards sort of the keep. They want to own the city. They want to sit on the throne. And as they kind of head along, the Van Dents, the two witch hunters, this is kind of their in tow. They realize what's happening, but they're too late to stop it. So they kind of charge forward behind them, trying to um, sort of intercede however they can. And... We might as well go ahead and wrap up their storyline here because it really doesn't come up later. Um, they managed to make their way to the palace along with uh, one of the leaders of the Stormcast Eternals who has been helping them and has kind of trusted their gut. And they're outside of the keep and they sort of say a prayer to Sigmar and steal themselves and then walk inside. And around them is a horrifying room of death and flesh. As people are sort of like flayed and put in weird positions like poses and the dead are all around and it turns their stomach. And they walk into the throne room and they see um, the two uh, hands of Slanesh, the twins, uh, above the queen and her, all of her like royal guard are around her with their swords raised like they're going to attack her and the twins have like a puppeteering motion with their hands and the van dents are able to counterspell magic with their weapons like their bullets and crossbow are anti-magic specifically so, because they came to excelsius to like just to figure out what's going on with these endless spells and hopefully like shut them, them down yeah, yeah. hunt them so, like, their bolts carry anti-magic, and a bolt is sent into the back of one of the sisters. Her spell is broken. The royal guard turn to protect their leader. They There's also a cool moment where, like, they each pull a pendant from around their neck that's, like, amber. And when they pop it, they become sort of bestial, animal-like warriors with these anti-magic swords. Super cool. Why didn't and we get those models? <laughs> I'd love to see those. Uh, and they begin trying to protect their leader. Uh, I think it's the queen. And the Van Dents dive in as well. So does the Stormcast. And the fight is kind of back and forth. Uh, but in the end, through luck and faith, the twins, after having the throne for a brief moment, are sent hurtling back to hell as they are banished from this realm and the Van Dents save the ruler of the city. So that's one threat assessed one threat handled, but everything else is still going on outside. And as the camera kind of pans back, things have only gotten worse, much, much worse. All that fighting at the walls has now spilled into the city and Kragnos himself has spilled into the city 
which means there's not a lot of city where he spills into. It's just kind of rubble. And everything at the docks has also pushed up. Uh, the people defending it like tried to grab all the wood and make like barricades, but it just wasn't enough and they were getting overwhelmed. And everything looks like it's going to fall apart. Uh, there's no victory in sight. Until from the horizon, out of a mist, the Black Orc, the Black Ark Corsairs come sailing back. All of the Dark Elves. And at the front is a colossal ship. And all of them begin firing on the destruction forces. And off of the boat comes Marathi. Uh, there's this really cool scene where, like, the way the docks fall is... Uh, out of the water comes, like, three gargants, who, all whom, like, disguised their head and shoulders with driftwood, so it looked like they were just driftwood until they came up and out of the water proper. It's amazing. It's so good! Oh, my lord! Just, Tom, just like, Navy sealing their way out of the water. And uh, Marathi shows up and kills those gargants. And all of her, uh, her daughters of Cain do as well. And her reinforcements bring hope to the city. And they start pushing their way from the docks west towards the fighting proper at the city center. And it is her arrival that allows for a chance at victory. But she can't quite do it alone. And that's when Croak appears. Um, no one else could see him, but Marathi can. Because she could like pierce his magic. He's been keeping himself invisible for most of the book. Yeah. But essentially... Unfortunately. Um, yeah, there's a very cool scene where Gardas hears about what's going to happen. And he is in his chamber sort of pondering, like, how do I explain this to Croak? How do I explain this to the, sal to the frog? How do I make him understand the enormity of it? How do I say it appropriately? How do I convince him? Uh, I don't want him to think I'm overstating. And as he's having all of these thoughts in his head just to plan out his conversation before trying to reach out to the croak, croak essentially responds, I understand. And it is revealed that Gardas Steel Soul is now linked to croak. That Gardas is part of the great plan. So croak is now monitoring Gardas. And all of these thoughts in his head, croak just got. It's very cool. And, like, so that means he instantly understands the severity because he could feel it from Gardas. So he shows up in person, which Croak doesn't do. He's a he's a hands-off type of manager. He had to show up. They, they're selling his model. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and as Marathi moves to the middle of the city to try to confront Kragdos, she spots Croak and invisibility. And a brutal fight breaks out where um, essentially Marathi, like her smaller form, is like, all right, I'm just going to take Kragnos out with magic. And every spell bounces off of him because of that shield. And then Croak starts sending like meteors at him from the heaven. And all of them shatter on his shield as the magic is undone. And he like starts barreling down this corridor towards small Marathi and she is boned because I've seen his war scroll. Um, <laughs> and then the giant monster Marathi appears and she sort of throws her snake coils around Kragdos and begins to squeeze the life out of him as she stabs him in the shoulder. But he starts biting at the coils and hitting her with his hammer 
And, like, they're having this knockdown, drag-out fight in the city, crushing buildings underneath their weight, sending peasants running for the hills. And, uh, essentially, Kragdos is badly hurt by Marathi, but he's getting the better of her form. Even her monstrous form is not looking like it's going to win. He is just so mad, and so in his element, and so unstoppable. And uh, sort of smaller Marathi and Croak have an understanding that this isn't going to work. Give me an opening. And Croak creates a, a, a sphere, like a circle, of non-material light. And it expands. And in it, he sees another part of Gur. Uh, a part of Gur that he hasn't seen since the Age of Myth. Uh, he sees the land where his people are from. And he feels its existence. And it's sort of an illusion that Marathi is weaving. And he decides to walk through the portal after threatening Marathi that this isn't done. And he hops through, and they seal it behind him to throw him across Gur. And that's how they kind of defeat Kragnos. They sort of outsmart him and get him out of the city, and then they mop up the forces that are left. And where he gets actually sent in Gur is a place full of, like, chaos. Like, it's full of a bunch of beasts of chaos, presumably, and, like, other... Chaos-influenced and Zinch and stuff like that. So he's just out there cracking skulls. And taking names. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's mostly where it ends. I gotta say. Uh, it was a little weird. A little weird. Yeah, I so feel I guess... like they really need to clarify. And, like, what does it take to fully destroy a city of Sigmar? Like, Apparently, you, you almost can't. Because, <laughs> like, this this is no longer a city. After after everything that happens to the city in this book, the city should just be gone. Like, that's, that's what this, this should have been. Like, they should have beaten Kragnos, thrown him off, the city's still destroyed. And, like, the only, <laughs> the only thing left is, like, rubble and basically nothing, and it needs to be completely rebuilt. Give them the opportunity to rebuild it, but, like, it's gonna, never going to be the same. Uh, like but that instead, need... the city seems to have survived? Yeah. Because there's still a ruling council, judging by one of the final scenes? So, like, how do you... Like, in the continuity of the rest of the setting, how can we keep having cities get, like, fought at if, you know, Skaven attacked Slanesh cult from within... Zinch cult from without. Uh, Kragnos and the biggest destruction army. Ever marched. Like, yeah, it took Croak, which is ostensibly a god, like a god-level character. Um, Marathi, a god, like, to, 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 you know, outsmart him, not even to beat him, to outsmart him. But even then, like, it was a cheap way to kind of end the story, to be honest. Yeah, and... So I, I dislike that on two fronts. One, I feel like it's it's kind of a cop-out. No one likes a story where they're like, all right, and it's a doomsday moment. And if one mistake is made, everything could be gone. But then everything was K. Everything was fine. The, the, the city's okay. They'll, they'll rebuild. 
Like, it, it doesn't work. And also, Kragnos' like, motivations could have been way cooler. Yes. If I'm going to be honest. He is a character is cool. But his motivation to attack the city, less impressive. Yeah, we, we discussed this before the show, and uh, the idea I had was, like, they should have made it to where the actual, like, big city for his race used to be where Excelsius has been built on. Like, it's been built on the bones of his, old of his like, his race. That would be make sense for why he'd be so angry. And then give it to him. Like, let him destroy it and make Gur all his. And then we go into the next edition, and it's all about people trying to retake Gur. Or there was another subplot I would have liked. Um, the city kind of works by mining these, like, shards that let you see the future in Gur, or, like, possible futures, I will say. Uh, and there are people who mine these all day, every day. And I thought, like, it was sort of like a yes and on John's story. But, like, make these slivers that they're mining be the bones of his long-dead people who were so connected to this land that even just harvesting and consuming their bones will allow you to feel the energies within it and possibly see the future. Which would mean Kragnos would come back and not only find that his people are dead and long dead, and that someone is living on their burial grounds, but that someone is digging up and using them for their own gain. There's Holy, just, what a better motivation that would have been. What a And, and like what, what to tugs me with this book, like it gets me, gets me a little mad, is that it's got so many good elements and there's so much well-written stuff in it. Like there's all the subplots are cool. All the stuff is good. It just all felt like it was too much to be in this book. Like I felt like too much was going on in the story for a supplement that half only half the book is the stories, the other half the book is rules. And it, it felt overdone. Like it felt like there was just too much in it. It should have been split out into other stuff and like expanded upon. And on top of that, they need to stop just letting order win. Like, they talked about how in the beginning of it, like third edition AOS that it's a they're in a dire situation and like you know AOS three is all about how they have to go outward into the mortal realms and establish these things and I believe all of that thing because I've read the lore and stuff, but when you have stories like this and your main plot and you know in Teclas order wins in Bellicor order wins in Kragnos order wins. In Marathi, order technically wins is Marathi's, you know, order. Like, order didn't lose any of these fights. They had suffered a lot of losses. They got a lot of setbacks. But at the end of the day, like, the city's still standing. Just like in Bellicor, the city's still standing. Like, what were the, what was their loss? Well, their loss was, like, Bellicor now has the chaos storms, and everything's gotten worse. But there wasn't a big loss. And I think that we could, we really kind of need to see like destruction, death, or chaos just really sock it to the forces of order. Just hit them real hard. Yeah. In a place I where was... they're going to have to recover from it. Yeah. It's been a little frustrating for me as someone who likes destruction uh, because one, they just don't have agency. Like they are all, they're much like Skaven. They are just a problem that are thrown in to be solved. Or be They're never chaos. sort of, yeah, they're never compelling. Uh, they're just sort of like, yeah, they want to kill stuff. 
Why? Well, because, um, and it's frustrating for me. And also, they never do anything. Like they just they never win. Um, and in this, I feel like all right. So this was their biggest army they've pretty much ever amassed, with not one, not two, but three named characters leading the force, with everything on their side in their home territory. And they still lose? That's, um, that's a little frustrating. Albeit they were supposed to win. Like, it was clear they were going to win. Then Marathi shows up, kind of saves the day with the help of Croak. Um, which, like, we're not going to harp on the negative stuff too much. But I will say, I'm also really upset with the use of Croak. He's just uses a plot device for when they don't have a way of solving it so that Order wins. And they just use Croak. I'm upset that this is the book they sold Croak out of when Bellacore had more Croak stuff in it than this book. Yeah, I'm kind of shocked Croak didn't pop up in that narrative instead. It's a little like, weird. He 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 seems pushed into this. Um, yeah, I don't which mind was... the Marathi ending, like Marathi showing up and helping. Like, that kind of makes sense uh, with, like, the Black Arcs and her wanting to, like, figure out what's going on with all these elves getting murdered. But at the same time, like, there, there's a lot of ramifications that should be coming from this book that we just aren't getting because we're going directly into AOS 3. So let's, like, I want to see what happens in AOS 3, but the end of Broken Realms feels like a bunch of new stuff happened, but ultimately, Order's still alive. Yeah, it's um, it's a little weird. And the wrap-up doesn't help with any of that. Like... In the wrap-up, there's a scene where, like, the remaining people in charge of the city who survived sort of get together with each other to have a trial for Marathi. Uh, to be like, hey, you kill, you took one of our cities by force and, like, killed a bunch of our civilians and attacked our troops. Uh, you have to be held for your crimes. And she essentially says, yeah, but I saved the city. And, um... The Celestip Prime seems like he might just call her guilty and try to attack her anyway before Grungni, the god of dwarves, busts in, which is great. And essentially says, all right, children, we don't have time for bickering. Let's go. Um, like, we have bigger fish to fry. And I like that Grungni is like the pragmatic god in all this. That's cool. But they just hand-waved away the entire Marathi plot, which is a little f disappointing. Uh, you know, her turning on the other gods was so cool. So, so cool. And manipulating multiple races and multiple gods to get her way. And sacking a city. Taking it for her own. Killing anyone who would dare to say otherwise. And it's fine. It, yeah. It, it, it's fine. And then we have, like, Bellacor. We have, there's a scene with Bellacor and the newborn, uh, the two twins of Slanesh, where... This one I liked. Like, the twins are just, like, gloating to Bellacor of, like, <laughs> we sat on the throne of Excelsior. What are you... What do you think about that, daddy? Daddy Bellacor. And Bellacor's like, you sat on it for less than a minute. You were there for a few seconds, brief seconds, and you fucked that up. Uh... Why are you gloating? And it's just, it's a very good representation of like how Slanesh works. Like all Slaneshi demons work. 
And it's a very good representation of like Bellacor is, is like the most disappointed dad out of all of against all of the chaos like factions. He's just like all of you are just terrible. Yeah, I actually like his scene quite a bit. He's so bitter and he has every right to be. Um, and then we get a small wrap up scene where uh, we see Teclas talking to Selenar, sort of the spirit of the moon. Uh, as a follow-up to his book. And essentially what the scene says is that Nagash isn't done with his feud with Teclas. Nagash will be back. Nagash is very angry. He's petty. We know. <laughs> um, so that was that. And then they give us a wrap-up for Kragnos. But it's actually not from Kragnos' perspective. Uh, it is an orc that is on lookout deep in a murky misty swamp and he is like up in this tree that i guess is a mobile tree that they sort of lure to stay there so he can look from it and uh, they see kragno stomping in the distance and one orc comes down and tells another like that the the god of the mountains or the god of the earthquakes has returned and you know the orcs get excited and that is essentially like the reveal of the um the cruel boys yeah. However, at this point, because of the release schedule getting delayed, we had already seen the Cruel Boys, so that mystery was solved before they got a chance to put the book out. But that's fine. Stuff happens. It kind of confirms what we already knew, that the Cruel Boys are, you know, worship Kragnos. They're mm -hmm. very Kragnos devotees. Yeah. Um, and I guess this kind of explains 3rd edition, why they're... Why the Order factions are heading out to conquer new lands because the life quake has made some of them livable that weren't before. Um, which I think is cool. I like, I, I like that premise quite a bit that people are coming out to be settlers in a world that is entirely hostile. Uh, Just uh, this kind of ended with a bit of a letdown. The, the other thing we do find out for the setting as a whole is that we get a hundred percent confirmation that Bellacor's like warp storms are now covering and spreading to the other mortal realms. Um, which is good. Like we kind of assumed that was going to happen, but it, it does make the situation a bit more dire because now their glorious heroes can't just reforge whenever. But there's only very specific ones that can. So we'll, well see. we thought, but all the ones who died here didn't die permanently. Well, there was no storm. The storm hadn't spread to Gur yet. It is spreading to other realms. So, and we know that it does spread to Gur at some point because they start. They were talking about it for AOS three. So we'll see. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not against the idea. I just wish that like that played a part here, and it just didn't. It just feels like a missed opportunity, which I feel like is much of how I feel about Kragnos. Um. And it's a book that's kind of hard to summarize because I liked the first two parts so much. And the third just let me down a little. Uh, and I've got some qualms with how they kind of just hand wave stuff away. Which is something that AOS doesn't do often. And it seems more 40k-ish. But uh, I have a feeling they might have just been in a hurry and one of these plot threads gone so they didn't have to keep working with them. Well... We'll be discussing more of the lore in the future uh, with AOS 3 coming. Uh, so pay attention for more episodes. Uh, we'll be on Anchor. We're on Spotify. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Um, 
We're on YouTube. Come find us on Twitter. Come see our Instagram. Uh, thank you for sitting through this two hours. If you're getting to the end here. Oh dear God, it was two hours. Oh, good. Well, we didn't even get make one Stormcast and Spanks joke, John. We have let the people down. But you for those it, of y'all a, who have made it to thing. the end, we appreciate you. <laughs> Uh, some of these could get a little long and winded, um, but folks seem to like them. Uh, and when we learn a little bit more about AOS 3rd Edition and the lore and what they're pushing and what the narrative is, uh, we'll come back to you with some more episodes. And we'll hope to see you then when the time comes. But for now, that's been all of our opinions. Bonafide and Kentucky Fried. We'll see y'all next time.